Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. When are you ready? We're born. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Eric Jorgensen. He is the author of the Navalmanac. It is exactly what it sounds like. It's a collection of everything that Naval Ravikant has written it's an absolutely fascinating read. I'm so glad that someone has done it. It's a, it's a fantastic project. In his day job, Eric's a product manager at uh, Zali. We're going to talk about that too right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. I saw you tweeting about the Navalmanac, and the moment that I saw it, I was like, I know exactly what this is, and this is a brilliant idea, and I'm so glad someone has collected all of Navel's tweets together in like a Charlie Munger style Charlie's Almanac. So, yeah, the the story. What's the what's the story, man? How how the project come about? Yeah, it it was very uh, it was very haphazard actually. Like I, I wish I could say it was more intentional. Like I, I had the same kind of hope. Like I, it was after that uh, podcast he did on Farnham Street that was like one of the huge kind of like breakout things. And I was like, man, this stuff is so good. It just seems like too good for a podcast. And he was just dropping like amazing tweets. Um, I think it was even before the How to Get Rich tweet storm right. and i was like god there's just so much like good stuff here and i've been following naval for 10 years and half the books i read are these amazing like compilations of stuff that people have put together you know if you study munger like you've read a bunch of compilations um and so i was like man this somebody needs to do this and so i tweeted it was a very half-assed tweet um my first my first draft of the title was the book of knowledge um <laughs> and and a but like he retweeted it and was like, and 5,000 people were like, Oh my God. Yeah, please do this. And yeah. then half the replies were like, you've got to pick a better title. Dude, that is garbage. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's like 10 o'clock at night. I was just fucking around on Twitter. Calm down. Um, but yeah, it, it came, it came together quickly. And I was like, Oh, I guess this is like a real project really quickly. Um, but yeah, I, it, loving poor Charlie's almanac and a lot of Peter Bevel and stuff. Um, this was such a, like, someone's got to do it. I'm glad it clicked for you right away too. Like, it's just that he's he's so great. He's great to listen to. Like I loved him on that Rogan podcast. If anything, I kind of felt like Rogan let him down a little bit because Rogan, wasn't, as much as I love Rogan, it, it just Naval's so uh, thoughtful, and you need to sit there and listen to it and kind of absorb it. And I felt like Rogan didn't follow up or kind of wasn't really following what he was saying on some occasions. And I, and I again, I thought I think you'd already, I think I knew about your project at that stage, and I thought what I really want to do is sit down. And read through this because again on Twitter it doesn't really work. The tweet storms, you know, there's just too much distraction on Twitter to kind of really sit and think. So yeah. the the Naval podcasts are great if you're walking around and you're just listening to them. But again, I for whatever reason I find it easier to sort of absorb stuff if it's written down and you've got enough time to kind of go over it. So it's a great project. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm excited about it. Um, I can't wait to see what's gonna happen here. Like, I don't, I don't know exactly. I know like Naval's got a lot of fans, and 
there's a lot of people who seem excited about having a, a book version, you know, exactly like you're saying, like a little more, um, you know, his stuff is great, but it's all very, it, it, any individual interview tends to cover a lot of ground very thinly. Right. Um, and he's, he's refined the same ideas for, you know, 10 years. And so when you can find kind of like the best iteration of each idea and thread them together in like kind of a categorized way, like I feel like, um, people will be able to grok the ideas a lot better reading them through in a synthesized kind of organized way with no interpretation whatsoever. Like I, there is not an original word in this book. I don't claim there to be one. Like I just put all the best stuff that Duvall said, reorganized in a way that like made a cohesive book and hopefully it's really dense and interesting and people you know it's it's a helpful kind of new format for existing wisdom so let's let's you, you've broken the book up into uh it's in two broad parts wealth and then happiness and and then each of those has these sub categories so um wealth is uh pardon me i just looked this up very quick wealth is building wealth and building judgment and then happiness is learning happiness saving yourself and the philosophy i think uh most people listening to this podcast probably most interested in the building wealth and probably the building judgment part of it, but the other stuff is important too. But let's start. Let's 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 give folks what they want first. First out of the gate. So, can you like what have you what have you learned from synthesizing all of this information? And can you take us through the uh, what building wealth? And I'm going to take you through it bit by bit. But let's let's what's generally what's what's building wealth about? Yeah, building wealth um, is kind of an interesting take because it's really looking at the principles around it. Um, you know, there's not a lot of tactics in there. It's really kind of dissecting the process of building wealth into its component pieces, which is, you know, something like applying leverage, um, understanding that your judgment is actually what is building wealth, not your work. So separating, you know, time as an input from your hourly um, earnings. Uh, using stuff like capital and products and labor for to apply leverage. So, you know, I'm sure most of the investors that you are talking to um, are very capital leveraged and very judgment focused. Uh, and you see some of the wealthiest people on the planet come out of that. You know, Warren Buffett's judgment is paramount and he gets a lot of capital behind that uh, because every extra dollar has no marginal cost. His judgment is just better, and so value accrues to him in a way that it doesn't to anyone else. So let's let's start with the first one here. Um, how is wealth created? Yeah, Naval says wealth is created by assets that earn while you sleep. You know, separating wealth from money, where money is a tool that we use to kind of exchange value, and wealth is this kind of this extensive leverage that works while you sleep. So the money keeps making money, the property keeps getting rented, the software keeps serving customers, um, and that outrunning, outpacing your own effort with that sort of wealth creation tools, you know, those machines, those processes, those other people who learn the same things that you learn and can apply them on your behalf, um, that really wealth doesn't come out of the one for one exchange it comes out of finding a way to get 10 for one or 100 for one or a thousand for one he talks about leverage a little bit lower down so we'll come to that when we come to it but um what does he mean by find and build specific knowledge yeah specific knowledge um is an interesting one and i think it's counterintuitive for people uh specific knowledge 
kind of comes from this sense that you can't be someone else. You know, if you're trying to chase Warren Buffett's shoes, but you haven't been reading S1 since you were 13 and, you know, buying gumball machines, then like you're not going to win the way Warren Buffett won. So finding the things that you are uniquely good at and kind of getting into um, productizing yourself and extending yourself like your own brand, things that come easily to you, things that come naturally to you. You know, if your gift is talking to people, you know, having a podcast to represent your fund may come easier to you than writing a book to represent your fund. Um, so finding the things that are that are natural to you um, and that you can go uniquely far at. And when you're into the extreme of this, you become the only person who can solve specific problems with your specific knowledge. So, you know, when the government, not to overuse Warren Buffett as an example here, but when the government, you know, needs to find someone to bail out banks, like there's not, that's a short list of people you can call. Um, and so Warren Buffett's specific knowledge and specific resources become like very, very important there. Um, you know, Elon Musk may be the only person who can will the Neuralink into existence despite like the science is not being there. And he has done it a few times, um, just kind of creating this theatrical thing that forces the science to move more quickly, you know, we, you and I could go through the same motions and it wouldn't have the same impact because we haven't run this path. Um, and so I think it is, it is hard because it's so, um, it's so natural to study other wealthy people or other successful people, deconstruct their formula and then try to do it yourself. Um, and Naval really encourages people to, Sure, like look at the principles that worked for them and understand the principles of how wealth is created, but but don't lose sight of the fact that you can't become someone else and you have to figure out how to apply your own talents and your own interests. Otherwise, you're going to be swimming upstream your whole life and never you know, really have the wind at your back. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating that point about Muscara. I've just I've been reading the book Sapiens, and there's there's an interesting part at the at the beginning of that book where they talk, where he talks about um, we've humanity has willed all of these ideas uh that we, we've imagined these things like nations and companies and money and we all kind of know that they're not real but we treat them as if they are and it helps us to, to kind of coordinate and i think that that's what very good entrepreneurs do too that, that the idea is so tangible that other people are prepared to come and work along with them to create this thing that doesn't really exist. And Musk might be the er entrepreneur because he's able to, we're going to put a rocket in space. We're going to build an electric car. We're going to stick, you know, mind control of, uh, we're going to stick stuff in your brain that allow you to control stuff. So I think it's a, I think it's a really great example. Um, one of the things that I've discovered probably as I've got older, uh, and this is one of Navel's points as well, is that... Uh, you want to play long-term games with long-term people. What's he mean by that? Yeah, uh, the the long-term games piece comes from something that I'm sure you know everyone here is familiar with, which is just that all returns come from compounding. Um, you're not going to win any games with one kind of at bat. Like you've got to keep showing up and keep doing the, preferably the same thing, uninterrupted long-term compounding. Um, and what he points out is that there's compounding in relationships, there's compounding in trust, there's compounding in uh, building awareness of each other's strengths and weaknesses and knowing whose judgment to trust on on different people uh, or different topics. And the long-term piece of that is that his, his iron prescription is that you really don't want to spend a day working with anyone that you wouldn't spend your whole life working with. 
which is very extreme um but it's really easy to get on that slippery slope of like well it's just a day it's just a week it's just one job um and you find yourself miserable for years because you think something is only going to be short term and when you say if you're not willing to work with this person for your whole life don't work with them for a day all of a sudden it's this crystal clear like that's not how i want to spend my life it makes you value your time it makes you value your interactions um and in the long-term compounding perspective if you're not willing to work with someone for 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, then you're not doing much to build the long-term value of, of trust in that relationship, you know, that the, these long-term partnerships and these long-term um, kind of efforts, you know, even in the startup world, it's it's kind of common to put together two or three people and take a run at a thing for a year. Um, but if you're a founder of a company and you leave after a year or two, even if the company goes on to be successful, you aren't part of that long compounding journey that becomes an IPO and becomes a huge company. Like you've really got to be careful which trains you get on because you want to stay on one for a long time. Yeah. I always think it's funny when, because, because I'm an investor, I do a lot of DCFs and I, I look at a lot of compounding and the, the movement at the start is so meaningless or there's so not, it's not meaningless. It's just, there's so little of it. The compounding yeah. is so tiny. You can't see it. And then you look at the terminal number and the terminal number is much, much bigger than you can possibly imagine looking at the yeah. beginning number. And it's kind of that you have to get used to thinking in those exponential terms where little things done right now really do have this gigantic impact down the road. And it does, I've noticed that Buffett does the same thing where you know, he's not going to take, he's not going to put something in his calendar for a week from now. If, if he's free and you're there and you want to get in touch with him, then it'll happen. But he's not going to tie up his calendar. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really painful, you know, to kind of know you're two thirds of the way into one of those compounding graphs that you can visualize and that everything still feels tiny and you've been at it for years and like you believe in compounding and you study compounding and you know the math and it's still just so hard to look at small numbers and feel like you have earned more now um, and just trust the process. I think it's funny. It's one thing that I've just, just from talking to people, one of the things that I've noticed is that there's talking to other entrepreneurs and other business guys, the thing that they all say is that it takes about 10 years for whatever you're doing to kind of start working. Is that, I mean, I know that you're, you're an entrepreneur, you run, uh, you, you're, Zali is your, do you want to give it, do you want to give a plug for Zali? Just describe for everybody what that is. Yeah. Um, it is not my company. I just was like one of the very first employees. So, um, we are about to turn 10 and it has been, you know, a long winding journey through, product market fit and discovery. And, um, we were kind of very early to, um, the switch to commerce happening like primarily on mobile and in real time and on demand. Um, but we've initially launched as a meta marketplace. And so we were kind of going after Craigslist and this was in back in 2011. So this is before Uber, this is before Instacart. Um, and we watched these kind of all of these use cases come up on our platform as people were kind of figuring out like, Oh, there's real time GPS. Oh, there's, you know, push notifications make a lot of this coordination problem a lot simpler. And then we watched these verticalized markets marketplaces start to pick off specific use cases because you had to get integrated with the supply and integrate with the man and own kind of one specific use case and brand. We we're like, oh, this is going to be a totally different thing. Um, so about 2013, 
uh, picked the vertical of home services and have been building kind of this managed marketplace for home services for the last um, few years and really kind of getting deep into understanding all the nuances between, you know, plumbers and lawn care and house cleaning and all of, you know, this is this massively fragmented industry with incredibly low NPS that is still, you know, pen and paper and phone calls and cash. Um, you know, it's, it is kind of a weird world because it's 20 years behind the rest of the internet. And so you think that there'd be this like wave of adoption, but there's a reason why all these things are done this way still. Um, and it's just what is it? not, it, there's a lot of demographic things. So a lot of the service providers, um, are reasonably older. And so those things will be changing. There's a lot of, um, you know, the distribution doldrums that Peter Thiel talks about where, you know, it, Enterprises clearly have huge contract value and then are driven by high touch sales processes and kind of low, uh, lower LTV, you know, viral things are driven by, you know, network effects and pay-per-click and stuff like that. And there's this middle world that is kind of like small business, um, that is just really, really tough to reach and tough to change because, you know, one guy's been doing things his way for 10 years and, He's doing just fine doing things his way and he's not being forced to change um, and he's not going to get disrupted because he's a plumber and we're not innovating new ways to plumb. And so the, <laughs> the like benefits to his daily life to go through the painful process of adopting new tools are pretty marginal. Um, right. And so it's just kind of there and the supply demand balance is way out of whack so that there's actually like a lot more plumbers and there's a lot more demand for plumbers, electricians, you know, HVAC, these trades than there are reasons for like, so the homeowners have to kind of work the way that the service providers choose to work and they just kind of follow along. Um, so it, it is an interesting, is an interesting industry. Um, and I think we'll see the changes kind of in our lifetimes, but it is, um, it is fascinating to watch. Yeah, it would be it would be nice to have one spot to go to coordinate all of that stuff. It is a it is a pain having to coordinate, and then every time it's a one off job, so you don't, you know, the plumbing's backed up, or you need a home handyman, or something like that. Most of them are one off jobs. Yeah, I can, I, I can, I would, I would like that. I'd be happy to use that. <laughs> I'll let you know when we launch in your in your city. Yeah, please. That's uh, Los Angeles in Palos Verdes. Um, what is the uh, position of leverage? Uh, that that Naval talks about. Yeah, leverage is, is kind of one of the key things that he talks about for building wealth. Um, and he categorizes three different types of leverage. Um, the first being capital, uh, which is pretty self-explanatory. You make a bet with $100 or you make a bet with $1,000. You make a bet with a million dollars. It's all the same bet, um, but the outcomes are, are wildly different. So you can get a lot of leverage by putting a lot of dollars against your judgment. Um, the second is labor. So if you've got, you know, one guy digging a ditch, you'll get a lot more done with a hundred guys digging a ditch. Uh, but you've got to convince those guys to dig the ditch and pay them to do it. Um, and usually, uh, both capital and labor are permissioned leverage, which means the people have to choose to follow you or the capital has to choose to bet with you, uh, unless, unless it's your own money. The third form of leverage, uh, which is kind of new to the world and we're still seeing the effects of, is what Naval calls um, products with no marginal cost of replication. So software, code, media, podcasts, books, um, these things that, that used to either not exist or exist only at high cost of replication were not that different um, 
Jim O'Shaughnessy actually calls it like symbol manipulation, um, which I think is a kind of a good, like a little bit broader definition. Um, but you know, one design, one algorithm, one, you know, set of, um, trading rules applied over and over and over and over again at no marginal cost. And usually these things are permissionless. So as long as you got a laptop, you can write code. As long as you got a microphone, you can make a podcast and you can kind of put your hat into this ring of meritocracy that is the internet. And in general, great content tends to get more viewed. Um, excellent algorithms tend to get more capital put behind them. And so by seeing that leverage is what builds wealth and how you can kind of start accumulating leverage. Um, when you look at the world through this lens, you start to see like how Jeff Bezos has leverage, how Elon Musk has leverage, how you have leverage, you know, this podcast we're going to record once and somebody's going to be able to listen to it in 10 years and maybe find their way into your phone and listen to it like content has this compounding kind of leverage to it that I'm, I'm sure you're you're aware of um but leverage is a good label for it that i think people have kind of intuited um but naval kind of pulls it out and distills it as a principle to to building wealth yeah that's good i like that my favorite part of uh of naval's tweet storms and i think i th I think it started off like this one, and I I really liked it because I'd been thinking about it quite a lot before it came up. Uh, he's got this how to get lucky, and I I have my own thoughts on how to get lucky, but let's let's talk about Naval's because Naval's been a lot luckier, so or a yeah. lot more. You know, I think luck and skill sometimes. You know, heart, guys who are very skillful are very good at getting lucky. That's been my observation for a lot of people who I've known, people who I've worked for, good investors, very very good at getting lucky. What what's the prescription? A couple of beers and a good line. <laughs> uh, no, I think I think he um, Naval breaks down luck into kind of four pieces um, that I think I can do off the top of my head. But basically, like you can cross your fingers and hope um, is like the most basic kind of lottery ticket thing, and then you get into increasingly how you control your luck or how you create more of it. Um, I think of it like luck surface area. Uh, so you can do some things to increase the odds um, that luck finds you. So just kind of building in public, talking about what you're doing, talking about stuff you're interested in. Um, all of a sudden, you'll kind of feel this tailwind of people connecting you with other people who are interested in the same things that you're interested in or sending you articles or, you know, sending you customers. Right. Like um, that can go a long way um, and it'll feel like luck. But really, like you did something to create that. Um the most extreme form uh, is to become so unique and so um, well known as being unique that you are the only person who can unlock certain opportunities. Um, and then it, what Naval says is luck becomes your destiny, um, which I think is a really interesting. Like when you That's look so at the, the hero's the hero's journey and and like the Joseph right. Campbell quest, like it it's a contrived story, and so it always feels made up but we each have our own kind of like set of unique talents and set of unique challenges that we are the key to a unique lock somewhere out there and life is just about finding that lock that you are the key to um and then it's gonna feel like luck oh my god my key fits this lock but like you worked hard to find that lock and and to become that key that's so funny because i you know there's that the secret which is totally woo woo it's totally bullshit but there's some truth in the mat in in the fact that if you start talking about something, you do like people who are interested in the same thing or who want that thing or want to help you with that thing hear you say that, 
and then they get in contact and you do kind of manifest those things. Mm-hmm. It's not magic. It's just, it's, it's just the way that things work. Yeah. It's, it's almost, um, I think it's like, if you believe, if you need to believe it's magic, you can believe it's magic. That's fine. Right. If you need to believe that it's, you know, generating your own willpower, you can believe that it's generating your own willpower. Um, I, I have some very like successful friends, usually in the sales world, it seems to me who, who are pretty diehard kind of manifestors and they write down very specifically like the goals that they're going to achieve or the outcome that they're going to drive. And and I think it's almost hacking like the commitment consistency bias. It's like, if that's yeah. my goal and you look at it every day, it kind of forces you to look at like, well, what am I doing to reach that goal? Is that the most important? Am I working on the most important thing? Like, can I expect to reach that goal with how I perform today? If not, like it just makes you sick to your stomach to look at that gap and you're like, fuck this, I'm doing something about this. Like, um, it, it, it's like just forces you to look at the inputs and outputs, um, and, and try to kind of solve for X. There's another thing that you said there that I think is really interesting. And this is in investors who I've known and, and whether it's like at a venture capital stage or guys who are investing on the stock market, sort of, they seem to have the same attitude and it's, they look for these. It's, it's a really hackneyed phrase and it's used over and over again, but they look for these asymmetric opportunities where basically I'm going to do this thing and if it doesn't work, it doesn't really matter. Like the downside's virtually nil, but the upside payoff is gigantic. And if you put a whole portfolio of those things together, it, you get enough of these things with these gigantic payoffs that you start looking like you're actually, you know, there's something magic going on in the portfolio. You're not f- causing any of them to happen. You're just saying, if I put enough of these things in there and I can't lose on any of them, but I can win big on some of them, you know, that, that, that's basically going to succeed. And, and then the, the, the destiny part of it is you have to look at it over a really long period of time. And if you, if you start looking like that, then you, you start thinking, well, I can't have things that I can't blow up at any stage. If I blow up, I go back to zero. But if I can compound this and get lucky over like from here until kingdom come, then, you know, this is a, this is a strategy that should work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny hearing you describe that because the, I mean, Naval in his angel investing is about the opposite of value investing from a mindset, right? Instead of like, you know rule number one don't lose money it's like rule one be sure you lose money because if you don't like you're missing out on something and you're not taking enough risk um but from the perspective of like my downside is 1x and my upside is 100x um and you need one or two things to go huge and then to keep compounding that like you never know what they're kind of going to be and you can try to get a little better at it and build more judgment and build some pattern recognition but at the end of the day like there's very little information to go on um, right. and, and there's so so many more unknowns than knowns um, that you can only control so much. And so the portfolio effect just gets, you know, really, really important. Um, and there's not there's not much investing specific stuff in the book, but there is some on the website. Um, and Naval has done some really cool stuff with uh, Spearhead around placing angel investments and, you know, how the portfolio math of those kind of things work. To me, it's not that angel investing and value investing are so distinct. I sort of think of them all on a very long continuum and it's just different mixes of frequency and magnitude. So if your frequency is low, your payoff has to be quite high. And so that's angel investing. And if if that is in fact the case, then you want to have a lot more of those bets on. Like you want to, and I think that's what, why I think it's Y Combinator that does it where they just figured out that we're going to have, 
if we've got a $10 million portfolio, we're not going to have 10 $1 million positions. We're going to have $100,000, $100,000 positions because if you get those gigantic payoffs, it almost doesn't matter whether you had a hundred grand or a million in it. You just need to make sure that you catch that right tail. Like that's all they're trying to do. With value, it's more like the magnitude is not going to be as big, but the frequency is, there's more, they're more frequent. So you can afford to be a little bit more concentrated. And so that's, I, I think they're, and you've just got to figure out where you are on the spectrum. If you're angel, you need more positions on. If you're value, you need fewer positions on. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's, um, it is a blow to the ego of angel investors that like you can't pick them. You think you can pick them. You can't. It doesn't matter what you do. Just get a lot of bets out. And like if that's the game you're playing, that's the game you're playing. You just got to get lucky. You, yeah. And there's a book that tells you how. <laughs> so let's... That's, sorry, sorry. That's a good one. Like actually, if you're thinking about um how do you make luck your destiny uh as far as angel investing goes uh you know that's the world that i know a little bit more about um you have to become basically like the first choice investor and how do you do that by developing an incredible reputation by being incredibly well known as an angel investor by getting a lot of deal flow and having an incredibly like entrepreneur friendly and kind of value add reputation which is well known like no one would say that they are trying to do the opposite of that necessarily um but becoming that is is difficult and you can see in naval's world how he has kind of executed that i mean he started angel list like he's sitting at the crow's nest of yeah. the interchange of information That's in clever, the startup right? world right it, like and it started with an email list and has built all the way up and now there's you know billions of dollars to deploy and he's funding other entrepreneurs to go and start their own kind of scout funds and deploy capital into niches that he won't necessarily have visibility into um and by increasing the tooling he becomes you know an expert in all of the mechanics of the deals and, and this all started with like a somewhat contentious interaction with the VCs of one of his first startups, uh, which I think is really interesting, but he knew once he wanted to go become an angel investor, like I've got to make luck my destiny. How do I get the first look at every startup? How do I ensure that there's always room for me in any particular round? Because, you know, startups have to accept your money in, in, you know, the startup world. Um, so it's really interesting. What was the contentious exchange? Do you, do you know that story? Um, I know a little bit of it. There's, uh, I mean, it was probably almost 20 years ago now, but basically he founded a company with four other people. Um, and then was that, that opinions, that was opinions. The company got acquired, um, by a company that eventually went public as part of uh, shopping.com for, you know, $600 million or something like it was, it was a good outcome for that company. Um, opinions was acquired for, not a particularly, you know, I think it was money raised or something in that neighborhood, like not a particularly good outcome for the other founders. Um, and I believe that there's a lawsuit that alleges, um, but was settled. So we don't really know, um, that basically that acquisition was done on, um, less than full disclosure of information. Um, and this was like one of the first times and maybe only like there's not you don't hear about this happening a lot that like founders sue their own venture capitalists um for basically like knowingly you know selling 
at a decreased value because right. the interests weren't aligned coming out the other side and, and things were settled out of court. And I think it was like eventually like an okay outcome for everybody. Um, you sell a lower valuation because it process. squeezes out, it squeezes out the founders and the guys who've got the, the preferreds that the press that compound, which are the VCs, cause they've got, we're going to, we need to get 25% compound on these positions. So, um, yeah. you don't get paid. We, we, our press liquidate and there's nothing left over for whatever you're holding. Yeah, and it was the founders that were no longer with the company. So I think some had left and some had stayed, um, but they got different treatment. Um, and so that, you know, is the painful kind of origin story of what made Naval like such a world class expert at every single term <laughs> in the deal sheets. And, um, and and that's kind of what started uh, Venture Hacks was writing about the game theory of venture capital and where are your interests aligned with your venture investors and where are they not. As an entrepreneur, you know, you're doing one or two or five fundraisers maybe in your whole life and these right. vcs are writing 10 term sheets a year and so there's this huge asymmetry of information you don't know what questions to ask you're like panicking because you're your runway you have very little leverage maybe if they're the only yeah. venture capital term sheet you're getting and so entrepreneurs um especially back in like the 2000s were, were getting um terms were a lot less entrepreneur friendly there was a lot less venture capital and so i i think um i don't know how much credit he would personally take for it but he certainly deserves plenty of it that naval kind of like pushed the norm of those terms a lot more towards the safe um the safe came out of yc um okay. it was another like kind of huge blow for that um, it, there, it, it was not, you know, he was not the only one carrying that flag. There's a lot of entrepreneurs, um, and, and former founders turned investors who were kind of much more realized, like you got to give all the control to entrepreneurs as much as you possibly can. Um, where the first era was much more kind of Don Valentine, like, you know, we'll give them some money and we'll give them six months. And if they <laughs> fuck it up, we'll give them the hook and put in a new guy. And like, um, that, that is you don't see that hardly ever because you see the returns of founder led companies um, and you see more and more kind of, you know, founders taking companies public and going even further. But, you know, there were no Bezos and Zuckerbergs to point at um, or even, you know, like Okta or Twilio, I think, is still um, led by the founder, you know, well into their public tenure. So th there's a lot of them now. You, uh, you just to go back to something you said earlier. You raised this interesting point, uh, and you, we talked about it in context of Buffett. So, if a bank gets into trouble, Buffett's the preferred investor because you know he's going to understand. He understands it, the business really, really well. Probably the best bank investor alive today. He's definitely got the capital, can make a decision really quickly. There's no committee. The same thing in my observation. And I'm, sure everybody else knows this too but it exists in venture capital as well right that there are these firms that and that's why this you know that i know that the the performance of venture capital firms is very much like if you're top quartile then you're killing it and basically everybody else is an also ran and part of the reason is if you're an entrepreneur and you get sequoia or you get benchmark or you get somebody big Kleiner Perkins, someone like that, they come in and they stick money into you. That's like, that's the imprimatur. You've got the stamp that Silicon Valley, the guys in Silicon Valley who know what they're doing say that you are the real thing. And now they're the lead steer, they're the bellwether and everybody else follows on from that. Yeah, it, it's interesting because that is reinforcing in a number of directions, right? So, um, you know, those the top five firms maybe 
Um, not only do entrepreneurs want to take their money the most, LPs want to give them the money right. the most because they because the entrepreneurs show up, um, they have much more power in recruiting. So if I take Sequoia money, all of a sudden, you know, my talent pool is increased, which means my odds of success are increased, which means I'll be able to raise more money from top tier firms. Um, and so this is kind of self-perpetuating across a number of different like stakeholders in the ecosystem. And then when you have great returns, you've got more LPs, you've got more money to deploy, um, you've got more talent, you've got more entrepreneurs, and, and this kind of keeps going. It's much harder for an upstart venture capital firm to unseat one of those things than it is, you know, in the public markets where, you know, stocks don't get to decide who they get sold to. You know, if you right. see a good a good bargain, you can buy it. You can, you know, the, the fluctuations and the it is a lot more free to kind of find your way into some of those things. Um, and it's less, you know, network dependent and sales dependent. And, you know, if you have a charismatic founder like that totally changes the kind of uh, opportunities available to you. It's uh, then it's it's kind of uh, it's remarkable that Naval has done so well with AngelList to have built that to the place where it has because it's sort of come out of nowhere and it's um now it's probably the best known angel probably the best known angel maybe the best i mean maybe even crossing over into venture at that point right yeah it's interesting it's kind of an amalgamation of different firms now and i don't pretend to fully understand how they all kind of fit together um i know they are still innovating on kind of the structure of the fund and really pushing on who is allowed to invest and getting kind of more um, equitable treatment, lowering the barrier for um, accredited investors, because that's still a big piece of it. Um, Naval actually lobbied Congress to get the Jobs Act passed yeah. uh, back in like 2007, I think, um, which is a, a kind of a brilliant bit of, um, you know, he'd been building AngelList for five years or something by then and then all of a sudden you know think new things are legal that he's first in line to kind of go through the gate and do and we still see accredited investor laws get changed and um the jobs act actually actually like accidentally um opened up the ico boom like right. you used to not be able to openly solicit for investment at all. Um, and now kind of all these, you know, crypto offerings and white papers and stuff can openly solicit startups can just go on AngelList and say, like, Hey, we're raising money. Like, please send us, you know, you know, lower, even a thousand dollars is, is kind of an entry point for angels now, which used to be all through lawyers. And if you weren't willing to write at least $25,000, you couldn't even get a seat at the table. Um, you know, my first angel investment, I had to like, angel investment in air quotes um i had to like help get someone else into the fund and then buy a piece of their investment yeah right um and so it's just like i can't afford twenty five thousand dollars but i can afford a fraction of that so if you make an investment i'll buy some of your investment behind the you know, off the table and um you had to kind of hustle some of that stuff and now you can just go on angel list and write a two thousand dollar check and all of a sudden you're an angel investor right um and so it democratizes the returns and it enables startups to raise from people who you know if you couldn't convince one of these 50 people to write a check to you your startup didn't exist and now you can you know there's a lot more avenues available and so you know the demographics of who can start a company and where they can start a company are really changing um and i think that's only a positive thing you know as, as like silicon valley moves to the cloud um it really changes a lot of the structure of how that works um and, and the tooling is is really what's doing that and angelus is behind a lot of those tools well let's let's change tack a little bit and talk about uh the second part of the book where uh naval starts talking about happiness 
I, one of the, I, I remember from uh, the Rogan podcast, and this is sort of, I don't want to say it's a stoic philosophy because Naval might have a different philosophy about the, the source of this, but it is a stoic idea that um, you, you can, you're sort of in charge of your own happiness. You can, you can learn how to do it. You can make that choice. So what, what, what's Naval's attitude to, to happiness? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start, probably especially for your audience, which is, you know, a bunch of super smart nerds. Um, Alpha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the the intro, the right intro is this idea that is like, well, if you're so smart, like, why aren't you happy? Um, you know, if, if you pretend to control all the things around you and, you know, believe that you are an intelligent and capable person, um, your choices are either to say that happiness isn't important to you. You don't, you don't want it. Um, which is to say like, you've got a limited amount of time on the earth and you don't want to spend it, you know, in peace and joy. You'd rather be, you know, angry or unhappy or discontented or, you know, desirous. Um, or you can understand that happiness is a skill and a thing that you can learn and a thing that's important to you um, because eventually you're going to die and that'll be the end of the game and, you know, you won't be able to change anything. And so the sooner you kind of, I don't even want to say admit, but like come to the, come to the position that happiness matters to you um, and that you want to spend your time being happy and then you can kind of quickly get to hey like happiness is controllable and it's a choice i wasn't born at a certain level of happiness that i am fixed at um and it also probably helps to decouple um believing that you have to be unhappy in order to be you know accomplished or performant or you know seen as respected and important um i, I think we get I'm not even exactly sure where it comes from. I'm sure everyone has their own source, but um, there's something telling us that in order to be accomplished or powerful or interesting or, you know, successful, we have to go around being unhappy until we've accomplished those things when the opposite is probably much more true. It is just difficult to um, it's counterintuitive for a reason that I, I still don't totally understand. I think there, there are two things going on. One is the hedonic treadmill. Like when you, mm -hmm. you, you get, you would, People who are successful set a goal, achieve that goal, and you should be excited when you achieve something that you set out to achieve. But what happens is that that goes away really quickly and you're kind of looking for the next thing. And so you're kind of back to that level of dissatisfaction that you yeah. had, even though you've done something that you wanted to do. The other thing, it's, it's sort of more in my world, but bears and shorts sound smarter mm -hmm. for the reason that oh, you're, you've got this like, and glossy and like everything's great and I'm really happy and they're like oh, well what about what about this over here or this thing you're not thinking about that and you're like yeah well if I think about that that does make me really upset but that's <laughs> that, that's a good argument for not thinking about that <laughs> yeah I think uh there's there's a, a, a pithy little like tweet in there um that basically says like it's really easy to be cynical and it's really easy to be pessimistic um for whatever reason it sounds smart and there's an archetype of like you know the prickly smart sharp you know spock like character who's kind of like running around reminding everyone why everything is shit and they should be unhappy <laughs> um and it's not as good as they think it is and you know it's helpful to have it, you don't want to be blind to those things um because it's hard to make good decisions if you know you only see the world through rose-colored glasses but um 
there's also understanding that you can put those in their place and that you can look at those things you know in a work and decision making context but not necessarily have to live in fear or you know anger at those things that aren't aren't correct you know take the step that you can take and and move on um the the rarest breed um you know by naval's kind of two by two matrix is is optimistic contrarian yeah so understanding you know when everyone is wrong to the downside um but you can still f- see the bright side of things um and, and picking and choosing when to put those glasses on and off you know you, you don't have to be one person um, or one type of person all the time yeah an author who i love reading in that context is john le Carre. Because he spends a lot of time, a lot of it is about, you know, trying to catch spies and trying to figure out what somebody else is doing. And so they, you've got to look at this behavior and do you give this guy the benefit of the doubt or is he doing something where he needs to be, he, he needs to be caught. If you haven't read him, he's he's got 20 really, really great books that I reread on occasion. I'm a big fan. You ever read Le Carre? No, it sounds awesome. Yeah, I, re- I recommend it. They're, they're, they're great books. Well, let's, let's talk about saving yourself. How do you save yourself? Yeah, um... It is a form of kind of radical self-responsibility. Um, you know, there's this, it's kind of across every category of life. Like we are told that there are experts and that they will tell us what to do and just like, you know, trust the government, trust the doctors, trust, you know, the media. Don't worry about it. Just turn your brain off and do what we tell you. Um, and pretty much without exception, that is either those external forces are either neutral or harmful um, and that you really have to take responsibility for your own life and your own decisions into your own hands and, and like work hard to question doctors, question media, question the government. You know, like if you're just allowing someone else's um, someone else to set your priorities uh, kind of unfiltered, like that is just always a dangerous place to be. You should always stop and question what that you know, person or organization or, you know, institutions, motivations are, um, what would be easier for them to have you do? What do you actually want the outcome to be? Are you certain that this message is, is helping you kind of reach that outcome? You know, we, we trust doctors because they're incredibly well-educated and they're in a shiny hospital with billions of dollars of equipment and they regularly perform miracles. And that is truly incredible. On the other hand, like, the FDA has given us fun- fundamentally incorrect or incomplete nutritional information for living memory, and there's no reason to believe that they're completely correct but now. They've got it right uh, now, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Is that that illusion that like, well, we're, we are living in the age of peak knowledge, which maybe we are. Um, you know, we know we certainly know more than we did a hundred years ago. Um, but it's funny how often we circle back to stuff that we knew a hundred years ago. Yeah. Though. <laughs> exactly yeah we, like we oh that's doing... why we used to do that okay now i get it <laughs> yeah we're almost certainly like innovation is doing us maybe as much harm as good and it's just a matter of like finding out you know where you know like potato chips aren't better for us than potatoes but they are an innovation um <laughs> so like which things do you pick up and which do you leave behind um and who do you trust as, as information sources like there's increasing benefits to deluding you and to misleading you um and this is kind of back where you know you can only be you only spend so much of your time being suspicious and paranoid and you know questioning everything around you like that is an exhausting activity and is likely to make you unhappy yeah Uh, 
but finding those things that um, and, and sticking to those fundamentals that you are you know are true um, and avoiding the stuff that uh, or, or at least learning to look at the second level you know motivations and interests of, of people around you um, what i have found is that questioning things doesn't it doesn't make me unhappy but it makes everybody else around me really unhappy my wife just just tortured all the time because i keep on saying why are we doing it this way she's like that's 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 where everybody does it some you know most of the time it's right that's that's the way to do it but you, sometimes i've just gotta you just gotta poke at everything and figure out why you know yeah uh, the reflex to ask a question is is a valuable one um i, I have had similar experiences you know it, it is uncomfortable to go against the crowd you know if you walk into a room and 100 people are watching the news and believing every word you're going to experience some pain if you try to convince them otherwise because they're all comfortable in a herd yeah. um you know everybody's drinking a coke and you're drinking water like that's going to feel uncomfortable um and you really got to be you've got to have conviction in the things that you choose to swim upstream about because swimming upstream socially is exhausting and painful and you yeah. know we, we are we are herd animals you know you're reading sapiens like you you know this like that's well, you, even when you're right it, it's not any easier well that's the that's the example i was just thinking of as you were saying that like everybody's we, there are lots of benefits to believing in these sort of shared imaginary things because it allows us to coordinate and do things but it's also good to have people standing there saying well why do we do it like why are we doing it that way like that's not a real thing we could do it this other way that is a better way of doing it and that's basically how we've progressed for the last whatever 30 70 thousand years yeah it's it is a um uh, this is not a well distilled thought yet but uh, but there's something interesting that like you can you have to trust the herd and the social proof on most decisions but the real progress um, and the real divergence comes from where you're willing to be a heretic, you know, like yeah. if you're when you're Galileo willing to kind of go against the church or, you know, um, Bill Gates willing to like all of challenging these these assumptions is where kind of big changes come from for you personally and for all of humanity. Um, but it's it's painful and, and you've got to let the other 98 decisions just go and you know choose to go with the herd because you can't do 100 out of 100 from first principles like you just can't it's it's funny in the same context there's a great series of books uh by neil stevenson where he, he's writing about he's a science fiction author but he writes about um isaac newton i think it's called the the quicksilver the whole there's, it's a series of three books i'm just going to blank on the name at the moment but it's the the quick i think quicksilver might be the first book in it but he's talking about isaac newton discovering the principia mathematica and um part of that it's set in the time of plague in london and it's so funny he says that one of the characters says i've reached this age where i can basically live out my days but now i have to travel which means i'm probably going to reduce the length of my life because i'm going to have to go where there are lots of other people gathered together which is you know that's how you get the plague you go you go where other people Whoa. are that's how you get sick yeah yeah that's this, true. this is all this is all pre-pandemic this stuff it's all written uh, it's, it's kind of great that's one of those things that i think we've known this stuff for just so long but yeah. i've i'd never like thought about that before like traveling probably does make you sick because you come in contact with a lot of other things that you just don't see on a daily basis yeah i mean it, it makes you sick in the short term and if you catch a plague maybe you'll die but it also strengthens your immune system and exposes yeah. you to new ideas and broadens your perspective and so like it, it is one of those um you know you're exposing yourself to harm in the hope that you're anti-fragile and you come out the other side stronger um but yeah. it's you know you, you, you can't go below zero on that one so i saved this for last um it's not a big 
uh, topic. It's just uh, the meanings of life. What what is it? Just just to wrap up. <laughs> yeah, the, there's some. Um, Naval has three answers. Uh, some some more scientific than others. Um, I think the first one is that there is none. The third one is uh, that there is kind of this coming like heat death of the universe that's you yeah. know driven by global entropy. Yeah. Um, that if you're interested in, you'll be interested in, um, but is not particularly helpful for changing the way you live day to day. Um, and the the second um, kind of in the middle is the probably the one that you carry with you, which is really that you have to decide your own meaning for life. Um, it is a it is a burden and you know one that we outsource to varying books and churches um, because it's a really hard question and it is difficult to kind of realize that you have to do it yourself and you have to decide yourself and then you have to hold the conviction and if you keep changing your mind you know back to what we were talking about long term compounding like you're changing directions every year and changing meanings every year it's going to be hard to build up something really satisfying. Um, but if you pick a mission or two, um, you know, or your family, your work, staying healthy, caring for others, um, and really kind of dedicate your life to it over a long period of time and keep getting better at it and keep finding ways to, to serve your mission better. Um, you know, I think you'll find that rewarding. And if you find it rewarding, like that's all that matters, you know, it's, it's a single player game. Yeah, I, I, I love that answer. And I, I think that's a great sentiment to, to end it on. Uh, Eric, if folks want to buy the book, follow along with what you're doing, how do they go about doing all of that? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, just my full name, Eric Jorgensen. Um, the book is available uh, in digital versions for free on the website, uh, navalmanac.com with a CK. Um, if you want to buy the physical version, um, you can do that on Amazon. They got paperback, the hardcover. Um, we got a, a cheap Kindle version there, but you can also get the PDF on the website and, and the book in full will be, um, on the website as well as well. It's important to all of us to make it like freely available for everyone. It's very rewarding to see people like kind of all over the world, um, reading this stuff and emailing me about it. Um, I, I do a bunch of random kind of side projects and stuff. Um, that if you're on Twitter or my email list, you'll, you'll get exposed to a very random smattering of my brain from time to time. <laughs> That's great. Eric Jorgensen, who is the editor of the Navalmanac. I, I guess. I never know what to say. I feel like it's weird to say I've written a book because I didn't write anything. <laughs> like a creator. Um, Creative, yeah. yeah. Creative force behind <laughs> Navalmanac. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Hope to see you again in Omaha soon when this is uh, this is all over. Likewise, if I can travel. 